Welcome to the Political Animals Podcast, a podcast about ideas, culture and politics. I'm Simon Kennedy. I'm here with uh, Jonathan Cole. Jonathan, how are you going? Good, thanks, Simon. How are you? Yeah, going well, going well. The weather's very nice up here in Brisbane uh, at this time of year, so I'm enjoying that very much. Well, basically, we're going to talk about the issue of post-liberalism, which is sort of a new form of right-wing political ideology, conservative political ideology that's uh, emerging, uh, particularly in the US at the moment. Uh, the foil for this conversation is going to be an article by Gladden Pappin uh, from the journal American Affairs, uh, just a recent article published just the other day. Um, and uh, Gladden Pappin is a deputy editor of that of that journal and is also a professor at the University of Dallas. And in, in this article, it's called From Conservatism to Post-Liberalism, the Right After 2020. Uh, Pappin basically gives a sort of... Uh, typology of the conservative right in the US. Um, basic the, the basic thrust of his historical argument is that uh, pre-2016, you had a sort of fusionist right-wing um, movement from the 50s through to 2016. Uh, then the, you have the, the political cataclysm of the election of Donald Trump and at this point, the rights, the right of politics in America starts to take on a new shape. Um, he proceeds to criticise sort of conservative liberalism, for want of a better term, and he looks at the different forms of that. Uh, so there are those who oppose Trump, the Never Trumpers, it's the uh, Bill Crystals of the world, uh, the Jonah Goldbergs. Then there are those who were sceptical about Trump, but they've started to kind of get behind him because they see him as the pragmatic option for defending a sort of conservative nationalism. And then there's those who are using the Trump uh, uh, the Trump window, if you will, uh, to push for a new kind of right-wing politics. Uh, he places himself in the third group, which is the post-liberal uh, right, who are looking at Trump not uncritically but are uh, interested in asking questions about what the Trump election means for uh, pop, I guess populist politics and policy, um, maybe you might call, what you might call a sort of post-liberal big government conservatism. We can talk about what all that means, but that's a rough overview of what he's going for. And I think the thing that'd be really interesting to talk about in this conversation would be the response to the way that he frames post-liberalism. Jonathan, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on post-liberalism in general and whether this article changed the way that you've you've thought about this uh, this new, relatively new category of right-wing politics. Thanks, Simon. Post-liberalism is definitely a new emergent trend in conservatism that is of great interest to me. And I've read a number of uh, post-liberals attempting to outline what this post-liberal vision is and how it relates to the conservatism of yesterday and this article by Papin actually clarified some things for me and I think we we will probably agree is one of the more interesting and articulate expositions of what post-liberalism is and I should say that prior to reading this particular contribution I have been skeptical and I don't th I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say somewhat alarmed by the post-liberal project. And whilst this was certainly a version of post-liberalism 
that I can support in certain respects as a conservative, it still did alarm me somewhat. Well, maybe we can come back to the reasons why that is because I, I, I had a similar response. So up until reading this article, the kind of post-liberal uh, uh, explanations I'd read, this is sort of the, the um, post-liberal articles by Susanna Black in The American Spectator from a few months ago, there was, uh, and so Susanna Black's actually uh, is a, a um, uh, writer from New York, Protestant, post-liberal. Um, but then pre- prior to that, uh, the, the kind of post-liberalism that I'd bumped into, uh, both sort of online and in other formats, was a what I would effectively describe. I'd, I'll describe in short, and it's much. It is much more complex than this, so you have to. Grant that uh, I'm going. To, I'm making that qualification, but in short, it would be a a, a, Rome, a, a Roman Catholic integralist post liberalism, and by that I mean uh, a view, a vision for uh, for a, polit- a post liberal right wing politics, which is founded upon a. Um, a, a not un- all encompassing and universalist is the, is the wrong terminology. It's sort of like there's a, it's it's as though that there's a there's a, a social vision that is defined by the church's te- that the, the Roman church's teaching in some respects, or at least in, or even in a lot of respects, uh, it's a it, it's a it's a attempt to frame uh, the common good and what politics should aim at in a sectarian way. And it's also linked to a sort of almost like a philosophical idealism that, uh, you know, but, and, and I, would, I would point to people like John Milbank and uh, thinkers like him who are, who are Platonist, Platonist idealists in their philosoph- philosophical theological framework and they look at liberalism and think that it's degenerate and um, think that there must be a better, truly Christian option, right? And so then they move, and then and this, I think, this post-liberal idea has tended to flow from those different sets of foundation, different foundations, those two different sets of ideas. Um, they tend to conflate at a certain point, and so most of them have sounded a little bit more like sectarian Roman Catholic. Um, totalitarianism is not the right word. I, I'm, I'm not wanting to make any enemies with these people, so totalitarianism is not the right word at all. But it would be like a sectarian Roman. Is theocracy the word you're Catholic? Roman theocracy, Catholic theocracy. Yeah, <laughs> theocracy might be another word which is a bit unsavory, but it's that. Kind of, but it's that kind. It's that. It's that kind of. It has that vibe, you know. Um, and obviously, and these, and look, these. Some of these people are. I I have had. Um, quite a bit of interaction with, and I regard as friends. So I'm certainly not. Again, I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm not wanting. I'm being trying. I'm trying to be careful language with the language that I use. But it do, it does. It has made me uncomfortable up until reading this article, at least. And then I, I read this and thought, look, this is a this is a much more. I felt like it was a, a much more grounded expression of what post liberalism might look like in terms of how it might play out on the ground. So it was. It was a very. It was a very interesting article. I, I think. I mean. I think it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on the the topology of 
the American conservative movement, just at least just briefly, because I think that there's a, you know, you, you've written recent, in the last couple of years a piece in Quadrant on um, how con- how conservatism and libertarianism don't don't go together. Uh, so it was a critique, conservative critique of libertarianism, and effectively that was a critique of of a sort of Buckleyite fusionism, right? That um, mm-hmm. the American right um, since the fifties has been basically libertarian and economically and socially conservative, but it's actually probably brought into a le- level of social libertarianism as well. Um, and you've argued that that's um, incongruent, and I, and I would agree. Um, so he, he and he, and Papin makes the same point uh, there. So I assume that you agree with him so far as he as he as, as that goes. But there are also some interesting critiques of Trump Trump supporters as well. In that Papin seems to think that they're basically just uh, um, libertarian uh, libertarians who who happen to vote Trump because that seemed to be the uh, the most logical thing for them to do. Uh, did you have Did you have any more I don't know Did you have any more detailed thoughts about about his his explanation of the American right I I found it interesting I, I wonder what you thought I have enough uh, detailed thoughts to fill a podcast in actual fact but <laughs> I, I could think, record another uh, one about that but but, but, but <laughs> Pappen kind of sets, Pappen sets up his Pappen sets up his po- his post liberal exposition That's right This is the first um, of a, a twenty episode exploration of this one article. <laughs> the, um... So so Pappen sets up his post liberal exposition with this critical analysis of the right in America. Yeah, I think I think the basic typology is sound. I've seen other typologies coming out of America in recent times, which have more than three. Um, categories or classes of conservative in the post-Trump or the the Trump era. We're not quite in the post-Trump era yet. I find it as an Australian hard to contest the the two fundamental categories of the so-called never Trumpers and the, if you like, reluctant. MAGA supporters, of which he names Ben Shapiro as one, which did surprise me a little bit, but I'm, I haven't listened to him for for quite a while, and so I have no reason to dispute that. But I think what was most interesting, well, well a number of things were interesting. I think his general critique of the conservative movement up until 2015, when Trump grabbed the reins of the Republican Party, I thought was very compelling and really provided new insight for me into how it was that the ground was prepared or was fertile for a Trump-like character to come and exploit it. And that was basically the bankruptcy of, if you like, the Bush-era Republicans, which in uh, Papin's argument, and I think he's right about this, the conservatism had really become infected with libertarian economic thinking thinking so it had developed an unhealthy fetish for small government and we're talking really small government here the kind of small government that you don't find any support for really amongst conservatives in australia um you mentioned abolishing the education department for example and and a general uh also love affair with unbridled free market capitalism 
and so really and sort of uh matched in a in a tumultuous and very unhappy marriage with a social conservatism and yet this very ideology brought about a set of economic changes in america that really removed the constituency or, or removed a wide constituency can't get that word out constituency you'll um, get there one day it's okay <laughs> <laughs> maybe by that 20th episode i'll yeah, that's right. that word that's right. um that the economic changes with the um you know militant reduction of the cost of production outsourcing uh the sending of jobs off to china really uh hit a lot of uh communities that may have been and long been socially conservative and so that if you like that libertarian part of the conservative paradigm collapsed and yet all of the other contenders in the race against Trump were still from the old Republican establishment guard, which had a very libertarian-esque type economic policy. You know, they're all free traders. Mm. They're all into deregulation. Um, yeah. yeah. Infinitesimally small government, at least in yeah. name. None of, them, none of them ever abolished departments. Uh, but we're talking ideology here and so trump was really able to resonate with i think what had emerged as a new constituency that had really gone a change that had gone unnoticed by the establishment also by the democratic establishment it must be said and i think hillary clinton and her campaign completely missed this which was a kind of realignment where you had socially conservative working class constituencies in America, quite large, which uh, didn't want small government and deregulated markets and free trade. Trade They wanted government intervention to protect their jobs and to help their families. And this kind of gets us to what post-liberalism is about. It's really the ideology for this new constituency, I think, and to come full circle. What, what is interesting about Papin's critique of the never Trumpers and the reluctant Trumpers, if I can call them that, is he really thinks on both sides, they've still got this neoliberal slash libertarian economic policy. Uh, and really, what the never Trumpers really only, according to Papen, they really only oppose Trump on moral grounds to do with character. And it's not, it's not I mean, they, they also oppose some of his policies, but the main problem is with his character. And yet the newly MAGA cap donning Trumpers, what they like is his immigration policy and his more robust nationalistic rhetoric. But ultimately, they're still the old Republicans of the Bush era on all the substantive policy issues. They're still... Uh, they still haven't shaken that fetish for small government, and so yeah, and the, so the, he, that that's the kind of yeah. landscape he 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 um, passes. And I will wrap this up. You'll be, be pleased to know in a second, Simon. And, <laughs> no, no, but I think it's, it's I think the, 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 <laughs> the reason for laying it out is that it illuminates what the post 
liberal agenda is all about because in part in part it's a it's a rejection and an acknowledgement of what they see as liberal failure and we should talk talk about that in due course yeah. but it's also a rejection of what you could call the the older uh, republican fusionism which tried to marry a kind of social conservatism with a libertarian um, liberalism, if I can put it that that way, on economic yeah, and those, policy. And those two um, failures are linked because in the first instance, the failure of that um, was is a, a, a like an under an undermining of Amer- of American of the the, the, the the well-being of the American, particularly the American industrial worker, the blue-collar worker, mm-hmm. and then also the undermining of the social, of the the, the organic social net, uh, so yeah, sort of so, social life of the again of the blue-collar conservative person who actually values family and values uh, values civil society institutions which support local you know local and familial relationships um and you know there's a certain there's a there's a safe like so, a social safety net which is an organic social safety net there which um the you know the u.s system has a limited social security and effectively i think what 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 the right in america has done is you know they're happy that the social security is limited but they've also taken away the the um this sort of subsidiary subsidiarity structure of society as well, and they're actually you know they're, they're complicit. Now, this is the this is the argument, right? I'm not I'm not necessarily saying this is the case, but they're complicit in the undermining of the family and of um, social relationships, which support which um, support uh, the good life in, in in America. And so the the the, the first failure is related to the second failure uh, in in a in a close way. You know, Simon, it's, it's interesting because it just occurred to me that the that that kind of fusionist, fusionistic love of small government and let's call it free, unregulated markets probably made a lot more sense back in the 1950s where there were huge manufacturing industries in the US and there were jobs for everyone and you could expect to get a kind of secure job, perhaps work at your company for your whole life. And the family was more intact. It was a, if you like, a more socially conservative culture. And so governments could rely on families to do more of the work and people were more likely to have some kind of job security but with the complete breakdown of the family unit and the the massive changes in the nature of the u.s economy where it's really now economy for high skilled highly educated elites (laughs) and everyone else seems to make a pittance if they can yeah that's right They're they're left behind in this economy, with the uh, the the again the, the argument we frame that the, the those elites have kept their jobs and sent everyone else's jobs overseas, effectively. Yeah. And so I, I think that that uh, 
small government focus both seems out of touch, like it hardly seems like the most important thing to be talking about, particularly now with the, the social discord and disorder and disintegration that seems to be taking place. But even going back four or five years um, and you know the, the idea that the government retreating further from the lives of people when they really got nothing, it's probably a, a hard sell. And so I think whether whether post-liberalism successfully offers an antidote to this or not remains to be seen, and we can discuss this. But I suppose what has allowed post-liberalism to emerge, because it's, it's just quite a provocative idea, it, it it seems to suggest in, in its very name a rejection of the dominant philosophical ideas on which our liberal so-called democracy has been based, understood and functioned for the better part of what, a couple of hundred years, a hundred, hundred or more years. Um, but it it's only possible in the context of you know, massive political change, both the bankruptcy of older ideologies like I, I talked about. And I think to some extent conservatism has failed in the US recently, not necessarily going back further. And I think that's to do with a transition in conservatism because if you look at Russell Kirk's former conservatism and he's one of the putative founders with William F. Buckley back in the early 50s of the so-called American conservative movement. Uh, the state of what passed for conservatism in the US in 2015 on the eve of the meteor called Donald Trump who came in and mm. smashed the place was really <laughs> almost unrecognizable. And, and, and Kirk, as you know, was... <laughs> He was bitterly opposed to libertarianism. He um... that that's right, and the, and the and I mean you uh, you raise a good point that there, there's really no I mean that the, the people that Kirk would resonate with in Papin's uh, topology would be the national the kind of more like the national conservatives, right? The people who um, so like like Yoram Hazoni who argued who's who's starting to formulate a quite a um, robust, um, robust framework for what he calls national conservatism and a sort of national sovereignty, Burkean conceptions of parliamentary supremacy and uh, popular, so you know, Burkean popular sovereignty. Um, so that that's more. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but that's probably more where Kirk would sit. I don't think he 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 would not be an establishment Republican today. Well, I mean, he you know, or in twenty fourteen, so. No, he wouldn't. But I actually find myself, Simon, wondering whether he would fit in any of those three categories. And that, I, that I'm really not. I'm not suggesting he would revealing. even fit in the. Yeah, I'm not even suggesting well, no, he would no. fit in the national conservative category. I was just thinking that that he's closer to that than he would be to the yeah, never Trumper establishment. I think that's fair. But where I was heading was, it's difficult to see him really like I say, fitting comfortably into either of any of Papin's three categories. And then that's quite a startling revelation when you think about it, that the 
one of the intellectual forces behind the very movement on top of which Papen identifies these three new breakout streams, if I can put it that way, seem to all depart from the heart <laughs> that used to beat inside the body. And that, that one thing I take away from this article and many others like it is you do get the sense, at least in America, that that kind of Kirkian conservatism is dead. It seems, it said, it seems and no one talks about Kirk anymore. He he's not even mentioned in here. I think Buckley might get one. Buckley's sort mentioned, of yeah. Ampersant mention, but it's interesting that no one's looking back to those figures anymore, because it seems like the ground has moved so far from then. And and really, I think what we're looking at is the metastasization. Another word I should have practiced before I got on. Metastasization <laughs> of the old conservative movement that in some ways was more coherent. I know there was the whole fusionism thing and the libertarian conservatism mm. spats of uh, yesteryear. But whether Trump is symptomatic or causal or both, the Trump moment really seems to have just upended the table that had all the cards on it and they've all fallen <laughs> in something of a mess. I mean, that's the very justification and rationale for writing this article. Is right. that we're in we're in the phase of needing new typologies yeah, for right. a landscape that is now largely unrecognizable. But let me ask you this, Simon. Uh, as listeners can probably tell, neither of us are American, and we are we are conservatives, but we're Australian conservatives, and our political context is a, is Australia. What do you take from this typology tied as it is to the, the Trump moment mm. uh, in your Australian context? Do you see, I mean, what relevance does it have at all? Or as part of this upturning of the table, has American conservatism, if it ever was in tune at all with Australian conservatism, has it now just gone so far in a different direction? Yeah. that we're really on a different course altogether. It it's it it occurred to me as I was uh, reading this piece that well there's a there's a couple there's a couple of things that occurred to me. One is that the and, and this is this is certainly not Papin's main point, but he observes that the national conservative movement uh, is is linked to other linked to other conservative movements. In other countries, and he mentions sort of or Victor Orban, Marion Marshall, Lucien Legutko, the Spanish, New Spanish Right, Italian Right, and so on. And that there's this sort of organic. There's a, there's these kind of organic conservative movements in Europe, which actually have a really different. They have, they themselves have a really different character to the. Uh, to the right in in America, and it's I think it's a similar thing in Australia. So, the the relevance of this typology to Australia goes I think goes this far at least that there is not that there hasn't there 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 is there has been a fusionist um, movement 
on the right in Australia. There's no question about that. Uh, in fact, it's explicit because Menzies fused together different elements of the right into the Liberal Party. And so you do have Liberals and Conservatives in a very interesting melting pot uh, major party in Australia here. So there is actually a few, that, that's one thing that is worth, I think, worth dwelling on. I mean, whether we dwell on it right now for a long time or not, but there is actually a fusionist element in the on the right in Australia. And attempts to break that fusion in recent years have not worked. There hasn't been a there hasn't there hasn't been a successful breakaway movement away from that. Um, Menzies and and now like Howard is the John Howard is the other great kind of definer of the broad church, the, you know, of the Liberal Party. And so you know, if you throw in the National Party there with the Liberal National Party, then that then you have this sort of fusion. Particularly, you, know, you have kind of a fusionist setup on the right in Australia. So it is relevant considering those those similarities. Um, but it's also interesting to me that the pol- I mean, we'll, we'll get to his his characterization of post liberalism. Perhaps we can move on to that now. The policy. The policy prescriptions that Papin um, uh, raises, which presumably are rather um, reformist, if not revolutionary, <laughs> in the American on the American right, which are things like paying people to have babies <laughs> and uh, supporting um, supporting industrial like nationalist industrial policy, uh, among other bits and pieces, um, those two things are not that foreign to the Australian policy landscape at all. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's quite comfortable comfortable territory for the, the, con- the conservative right in Australia. I think it's fair to say that. Those small government, um, old-style Republicans in America often seem to think Australia is a socialist country and they say so with a straight face, which is kind of funny because there there really isn't a constituency within conservatism these days that I'm aware of yeah that proposes to touch our socialist medicare system so called by certain americans nor to really privatize every single university we have a much more highly regulated labor market probably a more regulated economy full stop and uh, I mean we currently have a conservative government that's not afraid to intervene in the market and whilst there are there are there are certainly there's certainly a constituency amongst conservatives that will rhetorically say they think government's too big and kind of in a lackluster way decry the so-called interference of the government in their private lives but there's such overwhelming support including by large amounts of people that at least vote conservative and we have a compulsive voting system so you can't always assume there's a correlation between ideological connection and voting habits and so that that is one feature i would i would actually call it perhaps more of a cultural feature than an ideological feature it is cultural. It's not. It's not um, ideological because the 
the people who are supporting those policies are not doing so for ideological reasons. They're just doing it for, pure, for pragmatic, prudential reasons, right? And, and perhaps because they're, I think, two things. One, everyone in Australia has grown up with, let's say, a higher level of government intervention in the market. And I think it's pretty good. You know, they enjoy being able to go and get medical care and not having to mortgage the family home. And they like the fact that they can go to university for something that costs less than $3 million. And I think, yes. um, <laughs> and so when you, when you see, when you see this kind of, uh, you know, air quotes, socialism at practice, it's, it's pretty bloody good. And I think, um, the other reason thing is, and maybe this is a consequence or it's in some way dependent on the former point, which I think is a cultural point. That is, there's, there's a culture that accepts it's normal and appropriate for government to undertake certain roles and there's kind of broad-based support for that, a consensus. The other thing is that perhaps because of that consensus or perhaps as a contributing causal factor, um, we don't have the rhetoric of small government in our parliament, there isn't a faction and a constituency. There aren't people running on the government's too big and isn't the government bad. And so people perhaps aren't as exposed to the arguments because I suppose... But that's interesting, that's interesting though, because it probably was the case, say, when Abbott was elected, that there was a bit of a smaller government line being taken by... Um, Abbott and Hockey, and they had that fateful budget which never passed. I don't believe it even ever passed. Yeah. In the you know what's interesting about that, Simon? Fourteen budget, <laughs> uh, where they yeah, argued you know for, they about argued for small government, right? But it didn't. It didn't go very well. But you, you go. What were you, what were well, you well, did they argue for for small government because the rhetoric was budget repair, and so there, there's certainly a there's a there's a long rhetorical tradition on the right, which does I think match the right in the US about um, debt. So that mm. there's no doubt that conservatism in Australia, if we want to identify a fetish, we've, we've got a big fetish for debt. Okay, mm. it's, it's one I, I, I am partial to myself. That is, mm. traditionally, conservatives have really worried about getting into too much debt. But my recollection, I could be wrong, my recollection of the Abbott years was that it was all about the debt crisis that the Labor government had put Australia into, it wasn't a kind of principled ideological opposition to the size of government per se. Certainly as part of the budget repair, there were what turned out, what are in reality fairly modest cuts to the public service. Certainly the Department of Education survived. Uh, but I, I, I would argue, this is just an argument, I mean this who, who can be really sure, but I would argue that, that that political rhetoric of small government is far less prominent here than it is in the US. And if anything, in recent times, Australians have been far more, Australian conservatives, conservatives you could argue, have been far more preoccupied with debt and deficit than the Americans have, where they, you know, repairing the deficit over there means getting the economy in, you know, one trillion less debt or something. I mean, perhaps over there, the, that kind of argument, that ship sailed so long ago, it's it's kind of irrelevant. 
I think that's fair, Jonathan. And the, the interesting thing to me is that the, let's just say the, uh, the intellectual engine room on the right, the think tanks, say, in Australia, mm-hmm. are, are actually on the whole classical liberal libertarian small government types. Uh, IPA, so, um, the Centre for Independent Studies, have actual policy campaigns that are reduce the size of government kind of campaigns, right? That's and they, true. And and that, so so there is a there is actually a culture of it on the right, but it's obviously it, it, it's it's interesting that it's not actually uh, it's not dominant in the parliament, as you say. The parliamentary Liberal Party and the National Party are not about to. Um, reduce the size of government to the extent that uh, that is argued by the CIS. They're not, they're not looking to do that. And you know what? It's especially the case post-pandemic because <laughs> yeah. government spending has gone through the roof and the amount of debt the government's in has gone through the roof and the expectations of Australians as to what the government will do to help them in this crisis has uh, changed significantly to the point where the government went from um, not quite overnight but within weeks from pro- from arguing for budget repair in the typical conservative liberal conservative fashion to arguing they just ha- they actually just have to get into ca- what might be catastrophic debt in order to keep keep the uh, the vehicle moving along the road and so there there is I, I, yeah I, it's an, it's in, it's interesting to think about the economics of it this is the thing about papen's article though in this regard which was fascinating was that those policy prescriptions which you can tell from reading it to him to him were he he knew he was he was speaking to an audience that he needed to persuade um, <laughs> and that he knew where he was making some kind of some some fairly some more radical that were provocative ideas for his American audience. <laughs> provocative, provocative policy prescriptions, but to to us as Australians and Australian conservative Australian conservatives, they were more na- they they feel relatively normal, um, and you know, and so and so I think, I think that's that's interesting and relevant to your earlier question, which was how does this relate to to the the typology over here. But I think it's interesting to consider the, you know, I mean, this might be an, this might be a topic for another conversation, but it, it's interesting to consider that the intellectual episode seven in, of this twenty yeah that's part that's, that's right. In, the intellectual engine room is, and I'm, and I'm thinking mainly here of those think those right wing think tanks. Um, is it does actually have a different, um, does actually have seem to have a different ideology in terms of economics and policy to. Uh, to the the the, the uh, mainstream conservative movement, so um, yeah, I think Pap, so. So let's just like if we return to Papin's sort of post liberal um, policy framework. Um, Scott Morrison came out the other day, the Prime Minister, and said that he's going to support uh, Australian. Um, he's going to he, he's going to. I think he said he was going to build factories or he was going to um, support energy creation in. With Australian, you know, energy generation, and uh, and 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 that, and, and I I uh, I thought I was thinking, oh, Scott Morrison's a post liberal, um, but but he's obviously not. He's he's just a normal uh, pragmatic right wing uh, 
Australian Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, do, do, you, do you take this to be an interesting difference? I mean, I, I kind of think it is interest, an interesting difference between... It is. A, I think it's a fascinating difference. Yeah. It's a fascinating difference for what it, the distinctions or the differences it reveals in both our political cultures in general, but also specifically in our self-described, our respectively self-described conservative um, circles. And it does, <laughs> as you're talking about the, the type of fusionism that, that exists within the Liberal Party as it was established by Menzies, it really struck me that the differences in political idiom are not only profound but consequential here. And it struck me again, the same idea struck me, which I'm about to offload, when you were questioning reasonably whether Morrison might even come within the scope of the definition of post-liberalism as it seems to be applied in America. But of course, he's the president of some he's the prime minister of something called the Liberal Party. So in what sense could any yeah. member of the Liberal Party, which is the Conservative Party in Australia, ever adopt the rhetoric of post-liberalism? It it kind of is at least linguistically incoherent, is it not? You know, I'm 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 a member of the post-liberal faction of the Liberal Party. It just doesn't <laughs> yeah, quite um work and of course it did it did remind me that we do have our own contemporary cleavage if you like within at least the liberal party if not conservatism and this is a incredibly fascinating but esoteric linguistic obsession of mine but here we tend to talk of moderates and conservatives Moderate faction, a moderate faction and a conservative faction. And these two category markers are used routinely throughout Australian newspapers, even by the principal actors themselves. Now, mm. maybe we could leave this for episode 17, but I do wonder whether the moderates in the Liberal Party are best thought of as something other than conservatives. That seems to be implicit in the opposing faction being called conservatives you also see sometimes the the word of you know extreme conservative or arch conservative or ultra yeah um conservative but the point of raising that is that we have something called the liberal party and then within it we have moderates who i guess are the liberal part of the liberal party and then you have a conservative faction and then you have the national party which at least popularly, would be considered more socially conservative even than the Liberal Party. But then the National Party also has a history of what used to be called agrarian socialism. You don't hear that term so much anymore. But they tend to be the ones who jump at the moment the market does something they don't like, such as closing a coal-fired power station because it's no longer in, oh, yeah. in the interests of the the company then then they want government money big yeah. time so I, I guess it shows you how I well, and they often they, they, they often want they often want the trade the trade minister role as well in, in cabinet they, yeah. they, they're quite yeah. keen on that because they want to they you know they want to support they their, want to build uh, stuff the, um, yeah exactly I, exactly I, 
yeah, they're Bob the Builders. I think, I, I suppose what it shows is perhaps that the linguistic different differences rep, are representative of substantive differences. That is the reason we have a whole different language for, if you like, classifying the political landscape on the right in Australia, or at least traditionally, because we should we should countenance the possibility that things could change here too. Maybe there's a downstream lag from what's going on in America. But the fact that we have this entirely different idiom is probably more than just a linguistic quirk and mm. historical circumstance. I think it does reflect different cleavages, different historical and contemporary debates, different histories, uh, you know, the different history of how certain political parties were formed and, of course, the historical context, the economic context, the geostrategic context in which Australia finds itself. I mean, every political context is, strictly speaking, in a kind of very strict philosophical sense, sui generis, in that it doesn't perfectly mirror the history, culture, circumstances, geography, economic opportunities and challenges of any other country, notwithstanding certain similarities that come from the fact that all nations are made up of humans. And yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me constants. let me follow that follow that line of thought for a second because we have the we we have this. Uh, so 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 basically, Papin outlines this the, he, he this uh, explanation of why Trump even one, and why there's the possibility of a realignment on the right in the US. Um, my, my sense is that there isn't really the same possibility in Australia because there hasn't been the same social upheaval. There isn't the same economic history, social history, ag- agricultural history, industrial history, and so forth, which has led to a significant portion of the um of the constituency of the yeah the australian constituency to look elsewhere for um political uh political redemption whatever you want however you want to put it um what so so i mean i guess i guess i want i I guess i do wonder what the relevance of post-liberalism is in an australian context because there isn't. There just isn't the same. To me, there doesn't appear to be the same vacuum. Do we even vacuum. do we even have post liberal voices and a post liberal? Yeah, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any. This this would be the interesting thing to think about, though, is that I suspect there would be a post liberal. I'm certain there'd be there'll be post liberals in the uh, in the Roman Catholic into into in Roman Catholic intellectual circles and in probably in mm-hmm. the Roman Catholic parts of the young liberal party and so on uh, I, I i would be surprised that if there weren't because i think that this is a a uh, a set of ideas or an ideology that's um that's got purchase in those circles in the us and it's it's going to have purchase in the same circles in the in the in europe uh, I, I dare say it's here, my, my, which is why I think it's important to to ask the question. I mean, does is it going to is it going to have purchase here in a in a way that's going to be attractive to people? Um, what about it is attractive to to you 
say, Jonathan, um, if not, 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 not necessarily in a policy sense, because I think the policy mm-hmm. side of things is not that, I mean, to me, what Papin says is not that alarming or strange. Mm-hmm. It's the idea perhaps that the state could be harnessed for the common good of society uh, in a prescriptive and ideological way that may be grates against the existing system, the existing order. Yeah. Um, now, in, in one sense, of course, each political party, that's exactly what every political party is doing, right? When they win an election, they want to harness the, the tools yeah. that they've been given in the democratic process to direct the ship in the direction that they want it to go in. That's that's fine. I don't think there's any... Um, they're they're, they're, yeah, they're there that. to exercise their power in some fashion and to some extent. Yeah, yeah, Whatever exactly. their ideological so the, view of the government. So the, the, the thing that perhaps is shifting... Particular, I think this is most acute in the US, and I think it's becoming quite acute in the in Europe, and it doesn't seem to be very acute here. And this is the this is the difference, perhaps. But see, the shift that is occurring is that there is no longer a consensus around what a government will do, or what what are the parameters of a of a gov- of an elected government in terms of um, the kind of actions that they might take. In, in in the conventional sense, like what are the conventions that have been set up in a in a in a political system? You know, it typically you would have. So this is the thing that's happened in the US, right? Is that no one did anything totally crazy for about sixty years in the US after World War Two. Most both parties were sort of working on the same project, and it was just a question of whether you use more government or less, or free the market or not, or make this trade deal or not and so, so on like there are there but, but basically but there was a basic i would just you know you can characterize it in, in this way that there was a basic agreement around the kind of tools and the parameters of using those tools that were available to the to the elected government but i think that that's what's disintegrated i think that now you have a situation in the us where one side of politics will go in and will start to implement policies that are de- potentially quite deplorable to those on the other on the other side of the political spectrum, and that there's no longer a sort of a, a convention. There's no longer a convention as to how that should operate. That's potentially that that could potentially happen here, um, and so that might be where something like post liberalism becomes more attractive. But at this stage, I don't feel like there's a really great divide in terms of how governments behave once they're elected. That seems to me to be the difference, perhaps. Yeah, I think I have a similar feeling about the applicability or the viability of the post-liberal project, if I can term it thus, in the Australian context. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say I predict it will not take root here for two reasons. One is that it's predicated on a view that liberalism has demonstrated demonstrably and irredeemably failed. And I think there's some cogency to that view in the American context, but I don't, personally, I don't think you can cogently argue or more importantly persuade enough Australians that liberal liberalism has actually failed in Australia right now. Uh, it's not to say it might not reach that 
critical point of failure that the US seems to have reached this year further down the track. But I think for post-liberalism to really get purchase in any context, the liberalism that is implicitly and and often explicitly rejected in post-liberalism has to be recognised as a critical failure and or threat by the electorate. I just don't think you could convince Australians of that right now when we... Yeah, I think that that the system in Australia relies on on a a common understanding of the common good insofar as the government works towards a sort of... Um, so there's, an un, there's basically an unstated, unwritten agreement that the government will do what it can, what it can to help Australians get on with life. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. I don't know. I don't even know how to articulate it because it doesn't really. Well, I think, no I one's think like, the, no one articulates it. But that that seems I, to me to be a fundamental agreement between both political major political parties. Um, the criticism from the post liberal right would be, well, that's not a that's not a vision of the common good. There is no vision that is not you know. So liberalism's vacuous. It leaves a vacuum in terms of its vision of the common good, and it relies on cap- cultural capital that. Um, has been ebbed away or it's been kind of beaten down and it's no longer going to be there anymore and so there's going to be a vacuum in terms of the common good and it's going to be filled by something. And post-liberalism is responding and saying, well, this is the common good that we're going to aim for. It's like a Catholic social teaching vision of the common good, something like that. Um, but I, I feel like there's still enough of a vision for, for of what the common good might be in, in our context. Yeah, I think... Um... I, I would actually put it down. I mean, I agree with that, but I think that the if you look at the you know if we elaborate just a little bit about the critique of liberalism that is mounted in the post-liberal project, it really seems to me to be grounded in the notion that the individual freedoms that are at the heart and foundation of a liberal political order. And let's face it, the US is the quintessential example of individual freedoms, rights, liberty, uh, is that it has led to both a cultural degeneration, so a kind of degeneration of morals and decency, taste, um, manners, and that it's led to extreme polarization. That is, it's it's lost any sense of social um, cohesion. I think the the challenge for post liberals in Australia is that those same individual freedom freedoms, many of which are found in Australia with the difference that we don't bang on about them like they're some kind of idol that we worship mm. at, um, are still functioning. I mm. mean, we are not. Yeah. yeah. In spite of extreme COVID, um, you know, there's something kind of pathetic about the protests in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> there can only muster about 100 people at their most yeah. when they're literally living in a North Korean-like situation and it just shows that um i mean a it shows again the level of comfort australians the australian public has with government intervention a level that americans don't share i think demonstrably 
but also I just I just think how the question I ask is how how would a post liberal convince even a tiny minority of Australians that the individual freedoms they cherish are going to destroy them when we're a very prosperous country we've got we're a pretty remarkable social cohesion given our multiculturalism I mean I'm not not saying it's perfect obviously but all the only political assessments of any worth in my view are, are comparative because there's no kind of idealistic abstract measure you can judge a country so when it comes to social cohesion we're not only doing better than some countries that only have a couple of different ethnic groups but we're doing remarkably well for one of the most multicultural countries in the world we're about what we're in the top 20 richest countries we've got a very low levels of corruption uh we've got pretty good employment good education good access to healthcare, and and on and on it goes and so i think really in some ways australia has this gets gets me to the, the the second reason I was going to say. I think we have the right balance between, or not not shouldn't put it in such a normative language, but we we have a kind of balance. Whether it's right or wrong is is moot, but it's a kind of balance that makes it very difficult for a post liberal to sustain the critique. Not only because it's difficult to suggest that the liberal project has failed. Um but also because the natural constituency for post-liberalism is to take over the right side of politics. And as we spent the first part of this podcast discussing in detail, what is what does constitute in the context of the US, as articulated by Papen, uh, as a kind of radical realignment of using the levers of government power much more in order to promote the common good. That already is business as usual for a large part of the conservatives in Australia. And therefore, both the critique and the movement that post-liberalism is trying to prompt is kind of unnecessary in Australia. And so that that's why I make my bold prediction that it it won't get anywhere in Australia because of that the distinctive nature of Australian political culture and Australian conservatism. Yeah, I think and, the, only, uh, the only now that I've put this in the podcast, I can be proven wrong. <laughs> you can, you can. We'll hold you to it. And the, I think the only way, the only way it'll get per, that it would get purchased in the current narrow context is if there are, uh, as I suggested, there. I, I, I'm guessing. I don't, I don't know any, but I'm guessing that there are some. You know, young, bright, idealistic Roman Catholics, or even potentially Protestants, who will buy into it for reasons of kind of a political theology that they'll say, "Oh, this is consistent with my political theology," or "This is consistent with hmm. my 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 theology." This political theory is consistent with my with my faith, or whatever. So that might be one way that it gains traction, but you can't see it. I can't see it getting any uh, significant traction because it's the kind of it strikes me as the kind of political ideology and i think that's what it is it's it's an ideology mm. and i think Papen. i mean the virtue of what Papen did was he, he he actually put it into policy terms and made it um accessible for uh for people to actually buy into um but you know at the end of the day as we've observed it doesn't actually look terribly different to what 
um, ScoMo is doing here in Australia. And so, yeah. you know, you have to ask the question, where, what is this? Is it, What's it going to come to? And, and I think you're right that it probably won't come to anything here uh, unless there's some terrible economic upheaval, um, which would then lead to political upheaval or at least might lead to some kind of ideological mm. vacuum. But this, this, and of course it could happen tomorrow. We don't, we don't know. But, but this, it seems very unlikely for it to happen because the preconditions don't look like they're there. Mm. But is there is there any is there any room for change on the right in Australia? I mean, that leads to that question, and maybe we can maybe we can finish with this question: is is there actually any any room for sh- any sort of shifts on the right? Well, of course, there's always room for shifts and changes, but I but I think. Um, if I can put it this way, complex, meaning lots of different changes at the same time or one entity split, splitting into many, you know, one river splitting into different tributaries, if that's the right geological uh, I've got no idea metaphor about that kind there. of thing, but yeah, we'll, that's, we'll go that's with fine. it. Sounds right. Sounds knowledgeable, <laughs> even if it's incorrect. Could but be we're in a post-fact sounds... world, so, so that is yeah. my truth. Um, so I think for complex changes and radical changes, radical in the sense of, you know, a really pronounced movement, I suspect depend on crisis actually. And so without the crisis, of course, Australia's conservatism, conservatism can and will change because it, it can't by definition stay the same as a new, new generations come in. But I think we're, it's more likely to be evolutionary change. Now, the question for Australia is arguably, or even arguably might be redundant here. I mean, we are in a crisis because COVID is a, a kind of crisis. So it's possible that that on certain boring issues like debt and deficit and, you know, policing may have crossed one or more Rubicons, so to speak. Um, But, you know, I think, let's face it, the the crisis that has prompted the shift in conservatism in the US is not COVID, nor is it Black Lives Matter. It was Trump. It was the election of someone that completely threw the, what was a kind of comfortable status quo, particularly in the Republican Party and amongst the conservative commentariat and elite, it threw them into complete turmoil. And it prompted a massive, massive multiple splits in on the conservative side of politics. And it forced them into all kinds of crazy realignments that I don't think have fully taken form yet. I mean, this, this article simply wouldn't have been written if Jeb Bush got the nominee, win or fail in the election, <laughs> yes. yeah, and, imagine imagine that. It would have been different. And, and a I different doubt. I, I wonder if Papen would even be calling himself a post-liberal, to be honest, if it weren't for the Trump right moment. Right, and and we should should be clear that he's contrasting that with another one of the other two categories, which is the pro-Trump camp. So he's not really putting himself in the pro-Trump camp here. He's he's. He's making a prediction that post-liberalism is the future of conservatism in America. And he, he mm-hmm. seems to be suggesting that 
the post-liberalism already is on the ascendancy in Europe. I'm not so sure about that. Maybe we could do, in all seriousness, a podcast episode on uh, European conservatism, continental European conservatism, because that would be that's something I'd be keen to look at in more detail because it's really not a reference point for any political discussion in, in Australia, particularly... No, it's a very different context. I mean, if you, if you read... The, the, it's a very, very different uh, context. And it's, so it's interesting, actually, that I... It's interesting that the, the alignment for Australia... America's more aligned... In a sense, the right's more aligned, potentially, with the European, the European right in America than it is... than the Australian right is. That's interesting in and of itself. So that would be worth another discussion. Um, but I think, yeah, the realignments in America are absolutely bewildering. And would have been, as you said, would have been impossible if someone like Jeb Bush or even even probably Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or anyone really, anyone anyone on that ticket, yeah, would have been probably fairly conventional. That's right. You know, within within the spectrum of what is considered conventional, and um, you know, I think the very fact Trump won. It just forced everyone to re-examine their presuppositions on the right. Whereas that's the difference in like, Australia: is there's not really a mechanism for for a Trump to win. Like there's not a there's not a uh, there's no presidential election system. Uh, it's par it's parliamentary Westminster democracy, although sometimes it's called Washminster because it's Washington and Westminster combined. Right. But it's but it's but it's it's a West fundamentally speaking, it's a Westminster parliamentary democracy, yeah. which doesn't really allow for. Uh, I mean, I, I might eat my words. Hopefully, I don't. But it doesn't really allow for anything particularly radical to occur, unless there's already a sort of macro shift occurring at a societal level. I would argue, and then you might get yeah. something more extraordinary. But the, the, the but the it doesn't. You know, pe- people were talking about Scott Morrison as as the Australian Trump. I mean, that's ridiculous. He's he's so oh, far awesome. from he's, He'd be, he'd be, he's more conventional. He's more conventional for the Liberal National Party than Malcolm Turnbull was. You know, so, so I, I, I think it, it's just a, it's, it's, it's unlikely. As again, we might be eating our words, right? But it's a, it's, it's a Trump event here is not likely in the current, uh, in the current arrangement. You know, you know what, Simon? I've actually got a theory about Australian politics that speaks to this issue. Is it, is it that it's really Morrison. boring, or is it? <laughs> Well, that that's part of it, actually. That's part of it. <laughs> yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. Because let's face it, why are we talking about America? It's far more interesting. The um, <laughs> the I actually think there's a general tendency in Australia to overanalyze and historicalize, if there's such a verb, every Australian prime minister, left and right, because they're all so narrowly conventional really when when again to take my point about comparative politics the only valid assessments are really comparative the fact is no one no one has come within a cooey to use a really crass australian term of a trump left or right you know what what are, what are our big people with personalities you know paul keating and bob Hawke. i mean they all govern when you look at their policies and the way mm. they govern within a much uh narrower if you like set of confines, which is why, and, and maybe that has something to do with compulsory voting. So you kind of have to be fairly mainstream to win a majority of 
compulsory votes. Whereas the big personality and the outrageous person and the unconventional possibly works better in a voluntary system where you need to get out the vote, you need to excite certain constituencies. And so a number of people saw in Trump an opportunity basically to send an elephant into the the um the, the china uh, shop the china shop you know give it a good good uh, <laughs> what's the word here simon right. where am i going with this elephant i'm not sure i can't you back out sending of it an elephant into we've mixed in metaphors what? sending an elephant into a china shop it's usually a bull but yeah i know what you mean uh, well yeah i mean an elephant how would an elephant even get into a china shop anyway it couldn't, yeah, it couldn't. uh the, the point is that i the, as a consequence, if I'm right, I think we end up with these ridiculous assessments of Australian prime ministers, like the one, you know, that says Morrison is our Trump, just because our commentariat is desperate to find something interesting to say <laughs> about yes. what is in the yeah. in the scheme of things a really blessedly boring yeah. politics. Yeah. I mean. You realize how good boring is when the proverbial hits the fan and people are murdering your neighbors and burning down stuff in your street. Yeah. Or even worse, um, in some kind of civil war. You know, when when you're when you when you're in an exciting political environment, you long for the boring stability um, of an Australia, I think. And and this is this is where post-liberalism seems uh, almost irrelevant to the Australian context because there is not a there is not a liberalism to go past here. It's a it's a conventional environment which is still stable and would require something akin to a world war to to shift the boundaries. <laughs> you know what I mean? To shift the boundaries so dramatically. Or take a nuclear uh, holocaust to to. Yeah. To uh, excite radical political change in Australia, is that what you're? Yeah, so, so something, it'll be something like that. You know what I mean? It'll be something like that. And so, uh, I mean, I don't want to make light of that kind of thing, of course, but you know, but I, but, it's, but it's true that there just doesn't seem to be room for this kind of thing. I think this um, is the fundamental. This, this this is how I can really summarise what the thesis I was trying to build before, and that is post-liberalism strikes me as a crisis ideology, and there right, isn't yeah, the kind of exactly crisis right. to make it seem necessary and um, legitimate in Australia. And that's why personally, and, and I imagine you're in the same boat, we look with great interest as political thinkers and political thinkers interested, particularly in the, the right side of the ledger, because who's, who's got the brain bandwidth mm. to do both sides. Um, That's right. We look with great interest at this particular development in the US, and I do think I don't want I don't in 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 suggesting and arguing that I don't think it's going to be a big deal in Australia. Um, I'm not suggesting it's not going to be very significant in the US. That's why I'm monitoring monitoring it closely, and that's why it's worth discussing. Yeah, it's also the case, isn't it, that these kind of things also bear they bear they bear fruit. In indirect ways, even if it's not going to become a big movement, there'll be things that come out of it that are interesting and relevant for the Australian landscape. But it's, what you're suggesting is that it's just—it's not going to—it won't—it won't be able to pick up momentum here in any real sense because it's a crisis. It's a crisis ideology, as you said. Yeah.
God bless yeah, Australia. Yeah, and so, yeah, that's it. So this is, so this, I mean, yeah. And so this, I mean, this brings us to the point where you, you might, you might ask, well, what, where to for something like post-liberalism in Australia? Um, and maybe it's just, it's maybe it's going to remain a, uh, a sort of curiosity, curiosity here. It might have the potential to shape, to shape the right in some, some ways, as I said, indirect, or there might be some, uh, philosophically driven policy platforms which are developed but to my mind i agree with you i don't think that there's any any anything significant that will develop in australia uh, outside of maybe a more narrow sectarian frame of political thinking um, this has been a really really interesting discussion thanks for the chat jonathan uh, i'm looking forward to the next one uh thanks yeah, for listening for, to uh, the- part two of this <laughs> That's right, part two of 17. And thanks for listening to the Political Animals podcast about ideas, culture and politics. Uh, and we'll, we'll uh, speak to you next time.